My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk podcast. I am sitting here with Dr. Jamie Waldron. She is a professor at Marshall University and leads the Herpetology and Applied Conservation Lab there. Uh, Jamie and I, I think we met, uh, well, I know we met in Illinois, and it must have been, it must have been almost 20 years ago. <laughs> a long time ago. It was a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, anyways, I've, I've known Jamie uh, over the years, and, and we've actually had a very similar kind of phenology or timeline. First of all, we both um, you know, have big interests, especially in rattlesnakes. But, um, you know, our kind of, you know, our time at undergrad, master's and PhD really uh, kind of mirrored each other. And we were really kind of in that same cohort of uh, snake biologists uh, as we move through our career. So uh, today, what we're going to do is, is, as listeners know, we had this series on rattlesnake roundups in the Southeast, and we talked a lot about Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes. And we had the gentleman who wrote the book um, on them, Bruce Means, who talked a lot about uh, you know his past work and research he's done. And I thought a good way to cap off that series uh, would be to have somebody on who's one of the current, you know, leaders in Eastern Diamondback research, arguably knows as much as anybody on the planet about these animals and, and what they're doing. And uh, so that's why I invited Jamie here. So welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thanks for having me, Chris. No problem. So what I like to do, I like to start off and just kind of hear how people got into this, you know, crazy eccentric interest in snakes. For us, it's very normal, but for the majority of people on the planet, they probably think we're a little strange. So, you know, just what's that earliest history? Is it something in your childhood? Is it something that hits you later on as an adult? Um, what got you into this? Funny, I was just talking to a colleague about this this morning. I from the time I could walk by myself outside. The Gen Xers know we were allowed. We're forced outside at very young ages and we're told not to come back in the house, you know. Um, I knew I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. And my parents had a pond in their yard. Um, they had, you know, a couple acres in rural West Virginia. And I think I spent a significant fraction of my childhood in that pond. And I was obsessed with amphibians. And I would, I didn't, you know, West Virginia, we didn't have a lot of snakes. Um, Ringneck snakes, I would catch them, you know. The cool snake for me was a smooth green snake. And I didn't know it was called a smooth green snake. I just never really liked them. And then, um, so I went to 
I mean, I always knew I wanted to be a biologist and I really didn't think there was a career for me working with amphibians and reptiles at all. And then um, I went to WBU to study wildlife and fisheries management. And when I was there, my advisor said, I've got it, you know, you're obsessed with herps. You know, I've got to introduce you to Tom Pauly, Marsh University. You will love him. I mean, this is before faculty had web pages. And <laughs> and, you know, it was like so my undergraduate advisor said i've got to introduce you to this guy and so i he called tom Polly for me and i drove to marsh i remember i was so afraid to meet <laughs> he's the world <laughs> and um and then the, everything opened up and i knew I, I got my master's working with green salamanders but i knew i wanted to study rattlesnakes yeah and Polly was it? Isn't he like the? Um, it's very interesting that you're, you know, you you learned, you know, with him, and he was a mentor, and now you're at the same, you know, the same institution. But he was like, kind of the herpetologist that you know in West Virginia for quite a while, and provided a lot of the knowledge that we have in the state today. Isn't that right? Or he still is a walking encyclopedia of West Virginia herpetology. I have a meeting with him today at noon to help me develop a project. <laughs> I'm so That's fortunate great. we still get to work together. Um, and how, how does it feel to be, you know, you're probably not sitting at his desk, but you know what I mean? Uh, figuratively, how does it feel to be sitting at his desk now, continuing maybe to some degree, building your own legacy, but continuing the legacy of your mentor? It's really humbling and it's, you know, it can be emotional. Even I love the state of West Virginia and it's really cool to be back here. I always wanted to come back and, you know, jobs are rough and, and Marshall's special because it's a small school with a heavy emphasis on organismal biology, you know, with a graduate program. So it's, it's, it's home. And I could not imagine not working with him. You know, I'm, I met, Tom Pauly in 1998. I am still working with him under him. He's still my mentor. He'll be my mentor forever. I still need his brain, and um, and I appreciate everything he does for me. So yeah, it's 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 surreal and wonderful. I can never I can never thank him enough. Hmm. So that that's an that's just an amazing story. Happy for you that that, you know, your whole career trajectory is, has just taken you in that direction. But before you ended up where you were today, you mentioned you were at Marshall, you were working with him, uh, doing, working with green salamanders for your master's. And I'm assuming that was there in West Virginia, your field research. Yeah. And, um, when I was finishing up here, you know, you listen to, you've got a good mentor, you listen to your mentor's advice. Um, I remember I finished up here and I was getting ready to, you know, start applying for PhD programs and jobs, temporary jobs. And I had a couple offers from USGS. And one was in California and one was working with Ken Dodd in the Smokies. And he called me in his office. He was like, you go work with Ken Dodd. Trust me. Go to the Smokies. And, and again, that was a, a wonderful experience. I still think of Ken as a mentor. I still communicate with him, you know, and that was just a, a short stint in my career, but it was really meaningful. And so I got to go to the best place in the world to study salamanders, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. 
And then from there, I got hooked up with South Carolina DNR. Um, they uh, had been working, Steve Bennett and Wade Kalinowski had been, they initiated a Diamondback, Eastern Diamondback monitoring program. And they wanted to bring in Horatus as well, Tim Rouses. And they were looking, uh, hoping to recruit a student to do that. But they were just hiring a technician, a DNR technician at the time. And so I went down to South Carolina um, and started working with them in the South Carolina Coastal Plain. And I never left. It's still a study site. So that was winter 2000, 2001. And that's when I really got obsessed. I knew I wanted to work with rattlesnakes. Um, but after I worked with those two fellas um, who were instrumental, again, in my career, I never thanked them enough. Um, that's when it really, really started. And then I had to find an advisor. And I called Drew Lanham, the Clemson University an ornithologist. And um, if you ever met Drew, he's really unforgettable. And that was a, a great thing that happened to me, too. I was just, you know, I wanted to be in the state of South Carolina because it was me working with South Carolina rattlesnakes. And I called Drew up and he's like, dude, I don't work with rattlesnakes. I know, I know, but we can do this. And that worked. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity. It was wonderful. Yeah. So uh, I do know Drew. I've met him once, um, but I've heard him speak a number of times. And interesting, interesting guy. Yeah. Um, so, so you had this interest in snakes. And again, more parallels to our career. I was the same way. I did my undergraduate thesis and my master's thesis on salamanders, and but really wanted to be working with rattlesnakes. And I had to find that. Um, that break into that world. And I finally did for my, for my PhD, but you, so you ended up doing your PhD in association with the work you were already doing in the, in the low country of South Carolina. Um, and we don't need to talk about kind of exactly what you were doing. Cause I think a lot of that will come out, uh, you know, as we, we talk about your research you know, throughout the podcast episode here. Um, so, but I'm just curious, you know, so you had this interest in snakes specifically, and you, you did find this route there, but was it, was there some moment, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, seeing ringneck snakes and green snakes, uh, you know, around this pond, uh, that you grew up on. Um, did you ever have like an experience say with a, uh, maybe a timber rattlesnake in West Virginia or anything, anything like that? In the mountains, of West Virginia? For your listeners who are familiar with the state, I grew up in Randolph County. It's a very gray, cold place. Now, timbers are there, but they, where I grew up, they're pretty hard to come by. And it's just not terribly snaky, you know? And the only experience I had was, and of course, this was probably very instrumental in why I became a wildlife biologist. On the weekends, um, my dad, and my mom would take me to what at the time was called the West Virginia Game Farm, which is now the West Virginia Wildlife Center. So it's like um, it's a park where you can go through and see native wildlife or wildlife that was once native to West Virginia is no longer here. Like, you know, they have cougar, um, they have elk now. Uh, but when I was a kid, it was called the Game Farm. And, and we would go there on Sundays. It's open all year round. And they had a timber, they had a snake exhibit. And I rattlesnakes there. And I just, 
I thought they looked like velvet, you know, like <laughs> I never thought they looked slimy. I thought, wow, that looks like it feels like velvet, and they seem so. Weird. They're sitting there, right? They're not doing anything. They just seem so docile. I never had the urge to pick it up. I, I wasn't reckless, um, but I just thought they were beautiful. Mm-hmm. Do you, so? Do you remember? Do you remember the first time uh, that you were able to handle a rattlesnake? And did it feel like velvet? It didn't feel like velvet, but it was smooth. It was. It, it felt really nice and, and smooth. But no, it didn't feel like. When was the first time? Was it? it must have been in South Carolina. I'm assuming. No, it was in West Virginia. I think um, when I was working with green salamanders, um. I had uh, a good friend of mine. We're still in touch to this day. Her name is Jennifer Adams. She did a thesis of commercial working with timber rattlesnakes, and um, she and her DNR mentor had initiated a project and um, I went out with them and I helped her catch rattlesnakes. I think that was the first time I think, but I've handled a lot of snakes <laughs> and they don't feel or running yeah. other snakes, you know, <laughs> I've got lots of snakes in my life, but yeah, I remember that was, that was, that was pretty cool. Gotcha. Okay. So you're doing your PhD, you know, uh, you're working with Drew up at uh, Clemson and, but you're working, down in the low country, kind of working in this canebrake timber rattlesnake aspect to the existing work on, on diamondbacks. And again, we'll talk about diamondbacks quite a bit, so we won't dive uh, too deep into that. But then, so how did you end up, how did you end up from, you know, finishing your PhD to, you know, again, figuratively sitting in your mentor's desk? Well, I was pretty tenacious and I was stubborn, so I didn't want to stop. And so it's like, Steve, please, let's get more funding and let's put a twist on everything we're doing in the low country and let's do a translocation study. And of course, he was super excited. And this was this was fun because it took me off the study site I was working on and it put me into some private property in the low country because I was working on public property and to some of the most exclusive you know, quail habitats, um, hunting plantations in, in, in South Carolina. And I just called him up, explained what I was doing, and I was a student, and that we wanted to work with rattlesnakes on their property, but we wanted to move them off and wanted to do a translocation study. And so for that, it was my first postdoc. I went to work with uh, Wig Gibbons at SREL, and we did a translocation study that you know we I think we had three study sites and then we moved them to the site where I was I had been working with Diamondbacks, the public property. And um it was pretty eye-opening. We just did it with Diamondbacks, we didn't do it with Horatus. The uh results were promising. I think the most profound thing we figured out from that work was that Rattlesnakes appeared to be a creature of habit, you know, the diamondbacks. And we we know a lot about what type of habitat diamondbacks need. But by moving out, I was able to go to marsh habitats, tidewater, um, snakes that were in, you know, more upland habitats versus wetter habitats, flatwoods. And when we moved them, 
they snakes that came from wet habitats, Martian habitat was the water. So it wasn't a they, they really mm. seem to be fixated on that. Um, and then right when that postdoc was ending, I'll never forget it. I was driving around and the DNR Jeep and John Holloway at Paris Island called me. He said, hey, we need someone to work with Diamondbacks here. We've got an issue. Are you interested? Steve Bennett gave me your number. And I said, sure. And I'm still working there too. Yeah, so that was 2008, maybe? Yeah, 2008. And um, and that really, I was able to do a long-term work with them. Inland habitats, kind of quail management habitats versus coastal habitats, sea islands. Well, it's great you've been able to maintain that connection to, to South Carolina and, you know, your study sites there. But I'm assuming moving back to West Virginia that you uh, that you're also developing, you know, quite a bit of work um, in the state there. We don't need to go into it in depth, but um, have you started any timber rattlesnake work? And Yeah, I just West finished Virginia. a project. Um, I have a good collaborator at West Virginia DNR. His name is Kevin Oxenwriter. He um, he is there, the state herb biologist, and he did a translocation study in West Virginia State Parks, two of them, with timbers. Really cool. And we framed translocation rather than just moving an animal long distance. Um, we framed location distance in the context of their home range size. So we animals mm -hmm. for a year and... Then we uh, either translocated intra home range translocation or extra home range translocation to see if you know if it varied or if you know the, the, in, the intra home range translocation snakes would even really alter their movements at all because we knew they were in their home range so they knew where they were on the landscape um, and so yeah that student Elizabeth Johnson my master's student she just defended the summer so. You submit that stuff for peer review now. It was good. Yeah, I'd be very interested to hear more about that. We'll we'll move on now, but um, but we did a whole episode on translocation uh, in the past, you know, um, with Dr. Nowak, and then um, we also uh, I do a fair amount of translocation just locally here, pretty close to the Smokies where I live. Um, and, you know, those are always the issues we discuss, like how far do we move them and you know, so forth and so on. But we can we can chat about that later because I do want to get more in depth now on Diamondbacks. Although, wait, we never finished. You're at Paris Island. You never made it to Marshall. How did you get to Marshall from Paris Island? Well, Dr. Pollock called me. I was in touch with him all these years and he called me. He said, I'm going to retire. And uh, I hope you apply for the opening. And so Marshall did a search and I applied. And then while I was here, I think Dr. Polly, I was hired and Dr. Polly was here for two years before he officially retired. So there was a neat transition period there because he was here teaching and um, it really worked out well um, because he not only mentored me, you know, the science, and amphibian and reptile biology, but he mentored me on how to be, you know, a good professor, how to be a good teacher, how to balance teaching and research. So, I mean, he, he's forever a mentor. <laughs> he's a life coach. 
yeah. <laughs> that's great. Uh, okay. Well, let's move on. As I, as I mentioned, I want to kind of touch on a bunch of kind of, you know, research topics that you focused on, you're either focused on currently or you've worked on in the past. And we'll just kind of discuss these. And the, you know, the common thread here is not necessarily the individual pieces, but it's that whole concept. You know, what what is kind of, you know, the the current tip of the sword uh, type work with, with diamondbacks and, and what we're learning about them. And, and I think where I would like to start is a place that I've always had a lot of interest in, and that has to do with um, rattlesnake life histories. And diamondbacks are one of those animals that, that kind of have an interesting uh, life history, like a lot of other species, you know, what I might call like a slow life history. So maybe we could start out this discussion by you just kind of giving an overview about what you've learned over the years, what you know um, about uh, diamondback life history. Well, it tells us a lot about why they're not doing so well. Um, you know, the problem with anything with a slow life history really is that it takes years to figure anything out. You have to use, first of all, you know, rattlesnakes are Fine. We know that anyone who worked with rattlesnakes knows that, especially diamondbacks. You know, you don't have, um, you don't have the, the degree of communal hibernacula or hibernation that you do in more uh, with rattlesnakes in northern latitudes. They're way more likely to hibernate singly, um, and so you're really looking for a plate in a, in, in in the pine woods, you know, on the savanna, and that's hard to do. So they're hard to find. Recapture probability is really low. So you really have to scale your monitoring efforts to the demography of the snake. And we know based on our long-term mark recapture work that depending on where you are in the, in the species range, that it can take up to eight years for them to reach maturity. And that's that's a big deal because females only give birth every three or four years. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course. As you go farther south, when the growing season is longer, you're more likely to get maybe even annual reproduction. We've seen annual reproduction about three or four times on Paris Island. This is Sea Island, and it's, you know, when, when times are good, when there's a, a good rodent supply of food, they, they will ramp up and breed more frequently. But that is really unusual. That is not the norm. I would say every three to four years for a female is the norm. So you're looking at, you know, a quarter to a third of the females even trying to reproduce in a given year. And that's not very many, especially when it takes them so long to reach maturity. Um, they're, as with a lot of species with slow life history, the, um, the neonates and juvies have low survival compared to adults. And the most important, important demographic for management and conservation is adult females. You've really got to make sure you're trying to do everything you can to maximize survival of adult, adult females. But that the reproduction makes it hard. You know, their reproductive cycle is hard on them physiologically, and they don't always survive it. We've seen females die 
three to four weeks after parturition. Again, that's not the norm. We've seen that happen, I think, twice. Yeah, I wanted to say that in one of your papers, I, I remember seeing where it was actually the winter time period where snakes had lower survival, which to me would lend towards these these postpartum, these females had given birth this year, and you know, that a you know, a proportion of them were dying every year. Is that is that accurate? Is that was I reading that right? What happens is with any skinny snake, so if a snake's not doing well, it could be disease, it could be um, you know, any number of things. But if they try to eat in the winter, so if they're really emaciated, and postpartum females will do this, they'll sit up and ambush in like December or January. And in the Southeast, temperatures still get, you know, it's t-shirt weather a lot of times in the winter. Um, but she ha if she does eat, she has to digest it. And it's really hard to maintain the proper, you know, body temperature for digestion. Um, because metabolically they're slowing down, it's the wrong season. And they can die. They can die there. The, they can't effectively digest food item and they, they can die in festers and it kills the snake. So um, skinny snakes tend to die in the winter. Lights out. Time to sparkle, shimmer, and glow wild. Starting November 4th, the Little Rock Zoo transforms into a larger-than-light experience. Explore the tranquil jungle and discover enchanted realms glowing with mystical flora and fauna and prehistoric surprises. Spark your imagination after dark with wonders that illuminate memories. See the Little Rock Zoo in a new light at Glow Wild. Tickets on sale at LittleRockZoo.com. What do we know about longevity in um, Dynamax? We um, have a, it's over 30 conservatively. Um, I have a female that I caught this, this summer who's over 30. And we have recapture intervals of over 15 years um, of adults, adult at the initial time of capture and adult at recapture where they've only grown a centimeter. And it's a little long time. So, yeah, that I, I find when I do, you know, presentations to in the public, kids groups, whatever, that's always one. You know, I talk about timber rattlesnakes, which you know have, uh, you know, we now have records over sixty years. So uh, it, that always amazes people how long some of these these rattlesnakes live. So well, I think you did a great. Uh, that was a great description of this slow life history, as I called it. And you did mention that. Uh, that, you know, that really the, the females are critically important for, you know, the overall population. And, um, you know, and that if they don't survive, you know, the, the, this type of slow life history, your populations can really, de uh, you know, decline quickly. Um, and so what have you learned over the years about, you know, you have this animal with this life history that's, you know, say vulnerable. Have you learned anything? You know, with your work in South Carolina about, um, you know, in an empirical way about how that life history connects to, you know, say population vulnerability on the ground. I don't think you can. This might I'm, I'm going to get to where you're going, I think what you're asking me, but I don't think you can get there without 
talking about the long-leaf ecosystem because diamondbacks, their historical distribution is nearly congruent with the historical extent of the long-leaf ecosystem. And that's a system where you have, it's, it's a savanna with, you know, very open canopy with pine trees that dominate, usually long-leaf, but not always. I like to call them pine savannas and woodlands. You can more have more of a woodland structure, but even a woodland structure is still open, you know. Um, High-frequency fire is is critical for maintaining the uh, the system. That allows primary production to be on the ground, right? So in South Carolina, and I think I've heard Steve Beaupre say some stuff about this too with timber rattlesnakes in Arkansas. When you, within coastal plain habitats, when you start transitioning into, say, a hardwood bottom, maybe a, you know, along a along a stream, a creek, a river, you get primary production nutrients. And that, you know, becomes more like a gray squirrel habitat. And that's where your timber rattlesnakes really flourish. Um, and then, if, you know, the cane breaks as you're transitioning to the uplands into the pine woodlands, uh, you get to diamondback habitat. I mean, here you have, I really think there are some specialists who, or grassland specialists. They sit in, when, you know, timber rattlesnakes always tell students, they're so much more fun to, to track than diamondbacks because they do these charismatic things. You know, you might see them in a tree. They're leaf hiding. They have their head on the buttress of a tree because they're trying to get that gray squirrel. They're on a log. Like I said, super fun to track. You never know what you're going to see. When you track around a diamondback, it's like, well, there it is, coiled under the grass. <laughs> There's nothing ever really exciting <laughs> about it. We've had a few exceptions to that, but you know, it's they're they're really they're on the ground and they eat fox squirrels, they eat rabbits, they are big, you know, and 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 so their main prey items really do flourish when primary production is at the ground level, not in the trees. And so when you're talking about managing for a specific demographic and for population dynamics of diamondbacks, a few things are critical. You have to have primary production at the ground level. And when you get into some of the island habitats, you might not see that. But diamondbacks really like marsh. And that is very like a savanna, right? Prime, it's their highly productive marsh system. They're salt tolerant and they will hang out in oxide daisy. They'll hang out in uh, the needle rush. They'll eat marsh rabbits and they do really, really well. And um, so as long as you have the proper management of, um, of the ecosystem, keep primary production at the ground level if you're in a, in a woodland, to make sure that um, that you do that with fire, and you know that very well. I know how familiar you are with that. Um, and then on the islands, it's a little different. You don't need as much fire, um, but you, the fire still works well on islands as well. And if you're doing that, you're creating subterranean habitats, and you're maintaining any kind of type of subterranean habitats they're going to need for when they're in a crisis and they need protective cover that they're vulnerable then female birthing sites, and uh, hibernacula. Now, you know, the hibernacula don't need to be deep. They, they use stump holes. They'll use on the islands. They'll use uh, 
red cedar that are alive, they're leaving, they'll get into the root system of the cedar cedars, and they don't go deep at all. They don't need to go very deep. The ground doesn't freeze, right? They just need a little bit of insulation there. And that if you if you have the right management practices in place, you have all those components. Yeah. So how so I mean, I think you painted a really good picture of some of these different ecosystems that they live in and you know how they're managed and you know, natural disturbance regimes and how they would have maintained it. But then back to that original question, how about when you when you look at diamondback populations that say live in other landscapes, um, you know, say a human dominated landscape and they have this slow life history, um, do you see this vulnerability we talk about due to the females you know, do you have you seen that come to play in one of these more disturbed landscapes? Right. Um, we, I think, the best conversation I ever had about this very topic was with Marty Martin. Just because I, I would like to get this insight. You know, once again, now that we've had some some time since we chatted about it last, but he went to graduate school in Florida, in Tampa, University of South Florida, because it was Diamondback Country, right? It's the 60s, I think, or, yeah, I think it was the 1960s. And he talked about how close to campus he could catch Diamondbacks in the 60s, in Tampa, and and how they're, it's paved now. You know, the, the transition is like, like the closest you, he could find a Diamondback to Tampa. I forget where it was. I, I wish I could go back in time and, and, and write all that information he gave me down. Um, they just don't do well because even though the males don't have the cost of, you know, metabolizing eggs and parturition and gestation, they have to find females. So only one you know, a quarter or a third. So one in four females, let's say, are receptive to reproduction in a given year. The males have to find it. And so um, that means they have to travel long distances. And they, they their home ranges aren't as big as, say, something like an indigo snake, an active fork. You know, these are ambush foragers, so they don't have to, they don't move around much for foraging. And they're not territorial. So, um, but they have to find mates. And that puts males at risk during the breeding season, which is you know, late July, August, September, October, even through the winter. Um, so, you know, that it just doesn't do well. You know, roads aren't, aren't, aren't really conducive for finding females. Um, and so I, I have personally, the most urbanized landscape I've worked on with Diamondbacks is Paris Island. And that is different. I mean, it's a DOD installation. And we know how important DOD installations are for conservation, particularly in the Southeast, right? Paris Island's small. Um, and I guarantee you, ask your listeners who have Marines in their family, have them ask those Marines how many rattlesnakes they saw in Paris Island. They'd say there are any rattlesnakes in Paris Island. And that's good. That's what we want, right? We, the reason I was called into Paris Island initially was for human wildlife conflict. And um, we wanted to make sure the rattlesnakes were safe and that the recruits were safe. And so what's neat about Paris Island, because it's a DOD installation, it's a, 
a lot of Marines go through there every year because all the females in the United States go through basic training and all the males east of Mississippi go through Paris Island Basic. And there's a little, there's an area called Mainside. There's a lot of pavement. There's stores and there's a lot of traffic and there's a golf course. There's an RV park and the, the wooded areas are used for training. And so what's interesting though about Island is that after 5 p.m. it's dead. Um, I love being there. I love to be on this desk. <laughs> then you know it's empty. It's it's cooling off a little bit, you know. And and so we did some 24-hour telemetry work where we compared the daily movement patterns of diamondbacks on Paris Island. How are they there in a decent density, in a decent abundance? Um, how are they getting across roads? We were hypothesizing that it was because it's a military institution. And we know that diamondbacks tend to, to be crepuscular. I don't, they rarely move at night. They're really moving late afternoon, early evening when they stop. And so we compared the movements on Paris Island to uh, a quail plantation nearby where there are no roads and no people. Um, and yet the rattlesnakes on Paris Island, what happened was they weren't so different from the inland uh, population in terms of their dial patterns. But because the DD installation shuts down, it doesn't shut down. It's still going on. They're still training. But the traffic really lessens up. And, and that's when they're crossing the road. We've only lost a handful crossing the road since I've been there in 2008. I less than 10. Hmm. Um, and the, tra the traffic probably never lightens up in Tampa. Never. So, no, yeah. so, I mean, <laughs> that you, they can't occur in an urbanized area. They, they, there's not going to be enough food resources. There's not going to be enough habitat. There, people don't want them in their yards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's uh, switch topics and and jump to another area that you worked in. You've already touched on this a little bit. We don't need to spend too much time here, but I want to revisit uh, what you're talking about with translocations. And um, if I remember right from the paper um, that I saw in this that you published, you know, so you had moved as you talked about, you had moved a number of Diamondbacks. Um, you know, off of these private uh, quail plantations and you moved them onto the public land. And if I remember right, uh, those translocated animals had larger home ranges than the, you know, the resident animals, but their survival rates were not that much lower. And, and you know, as you know, a lot of places, translocated snakes don't do that well. Um, and so, and, and I'm guessing that's why you said there's some promise in terms of translocation and Diamondback. So first of all, is that, is that accurate? Um, and then what do you attribute that to, uh, you know, that, that Diamondbacks, it may be a promising approach for Diamondback conservation? Personal topic, because people give me a hard time about translocation. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that diamondbacks exhibit one life history characteristic that is 
very important for management, and that is they don't disperse. They have they're stubborn. They live a long time. They they don't. I've, I've watched rattlesnakes literally stay in an area that's becoming degraded, and they just don't move. They don't move. I've watched them get skinny in their travels. And so adults are really unlikely to disperse. They they, they exhibit juvenile bias dispersal. So the juveniles are the dispersers, right? And that's also part of the problem with juveniles. That's why they die so easily. I, I you know I feel like they leave the birthing site and they just pick a direction and go, <laughs> and they're just young. They, and they just, you know, they just get killed. And um, so where were we going with that? I lost my train of thought. We were talking about translocation. So um, what we did was we moved them to quality habitat. I, I can't stress the importance of that enough. Under the assumption that our previous work is accurate, that adults don't disperse. So longleaf management and restoration, basically a lot of the, and this is, this is not specific to Asian diamondback rattlesnakes. If you're uh, thinking about the longleaf ecosystem, my husband, um, Shane Welch, he's my collaborator and he works in this system. And we're always amazed how it doesn't matter if it's a mammal, a plant, it's a frog, it's a snake. A lot of the endemic species don't disperse, right? Caucasian woodpeckers, they don't disperse. That's part of their problem, right? Um, the, the the plants have very low dispersal ability. And, and what that screams is that longleaf system was big and it was persistent. Animals didn't need to disperse. Plants didn't need to go far, right? And fire was the process that maintained that. So for translocation, when you are, when diamondbacks are extirpated, we assume that the probability that they recolonize a site that's been rest restored is probably very low because they don't disperse. So I, you know, the like you can't restore a savanna and then say, well, everything's going to come back. No, you can't. You've got to bring. But think about red cockaded woodpeckers. The reason conservation of RCWs has been so successful is because of captive or because of reintroduction. We move them to areas where they once were. And diamondbacks are the same. If, if you're going to have restoration, you and not many landowners are going to want diamondbacks back, but believe it or not, we've worked with some great <laughs> landowners. And so, and and I'm going to mention their name, the Morris Wildlife Plantation. Um, they, uh, we use them. They did a big savanna restoration project in South Carolina. And we use them as a, as a, as a translocation site. And that was super cool. And um, and they they are still sending me pictures years later of, of diamondbacks that they come across. So hoping it worked because we, we couldn't find them there. I only found two diamondbacks at that site. They were definitely in very good density. So if you build it, they won't come. Let's take a robust approach to translocation. And let's see what happens. It's brutal. You know, you're going to, some snakes are going to die from the stress of it. But we only translocated healthy snakes, no postpartum females. I feel like you're not learning anything by translocating a postpartum female. She's already at risk of death when she isn't translocated. Um, all adults, no juveniles. And they were all from wild populations, none from captive, no, no captive rooted rattlesnakes. 
So we assumed this was a good way to do it, two drop-off sites. The paper that was published recently was uh, only there was half of the, the results from half the project. Um, and what we found was, yeah, survival goes down. But two females reproduced post vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forget how big their clutches were, but, you know, if 10% of those neonates survive, she's replaced herself, right? And still didn't lose her outstanding. And, um, and it, and it, they made it through. I feel like they can, and then also in the second year, their home ranges get smaller. So that first year post-translocation is clearly post-translocation stress. They move more. They're trying to figure out where they are. You know, they're probably getting equated with different prey items. If we moved them from a coastal site where they're used to eating marsh rabbits, now they're inland and they're going to be after cottontails. So it's, you know, I'm sure it's a very different chemosensory environment for them. And so, but by year two, they're calming down. And what's cool about some of the drop-off sites is that we had home range data from snakes that were already at that drop-off site um, that were native to it. And they did similar things. So they were behaving like the snakes that were native to the translocation site. Um, Were there any, uh, did they, were there any challenges for the snakes? I'm just trying to think about. In general, when snakes make these, you know, wider, have larger home ranges, longer movements when they're translocated. Um, what was the availability of, of overwintering sites? Did you see any challenges with those translocated snakes trying finding a place to spend the winter? Again, we're talking the southeast fire maintained lots of stump holes. I don't think there are some people um, who think that that might be a limiting resource for diamondbacks in some parts of the range, like not enough stump holes. But the winters are not bad and and they never stand around all winter they emerge when the weather's nice no they don't necessarily forage you might walk up to a stump and the snake has its tail out you know upping its metabolism a little bit you know they even change hibernacular in the middle of the winter commonly but no that's not much of an issue where i worked i'm not saying that's not an issue in other places i've heard people express really um, a lot of concern about that Especially, I think that, you know, when, when people harvest um, their timber, especially like post-hurricane salvage logging operations, you know, there's a push in, in with South Carolina DNR to not stump, leave the stumps for the rattlesnakes um, in these habitats because, because of that concern. As long as the stumps are pulled, there should be plenty of subterranean refugia. And it's, it's not limited to stumps. I always say stumps because that's what I most commonly see snakes in, in the southeast. Um, but it could be a, even an armadillo burrow. If you're in upland sandhill habitats, go for tortoise burrows. Um, I've seen them, you know, hibernate in the bank of the tidal creek. You, you just, it's not that big of a deal. I don't think. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, and what I noticed in that paper, you mentioned more, you know, the, like you mentioned, looking for foraging sites, looking for, uh, you know, whatever it might be, gestation sites, and didn't mention the overwintering um, as such a priority. So I was curious about that. Um, okay. Well, how, tell me about, I know you've been involved with uh, the concept of using external radio transmitters on Diamondback. So, so talk about that a little bit, just to, you know, maybe 
how we've always done telemetry with snakes, um, what you're trying and, and why we're trying it and what you're learning. What happens with us, I'm going to start off by saying internal transmitters are best. They are, are the most reliable way to get a year of movement data from a snake. Yeah, when you say, just for listeners, when you say internal transmitter, the typical way that people track snakes is we surgically implant the transmitters inside of the snakes. And that's really the only way to get good annual range data. That's very reliable. But what, what happened with us on Paris Island was that we were, we would catch it. We don't, we implant rattlesnakes with transmitters starting in March in the Southeast and we end at the end of September. We don't do surgery between October and uh, February because it's cooler and we don't want any, you know, infections resulting from a snake's low metabolism from cold weather and its inability to heal, right? So we why mess with that? So we don't do it, but we would catch so many snakes <laughs> between October and February that we didn't want to lose. And that's how it started. And um, we had some students and technicians play with some ways to attach them. And then we worked with um, ATS to, uh, it, well, actually the way it started, before we had, before we thought about doing it, we had used a similar approach to radio track meetings. We have a, a student, Jonathan Cooley, um, who did a thesis on neonate telemetry. And it was very, very good to do a known face survival model. But we weren't, we, we just wanted to know survival probability. Uh, what was the probability of surviving through the winter to their second year? So they're, they're born August, September, put a transmitter on them, survival probability. Because once they get through that first winter, you know, that, that yolk sacs in there, they grow fast. And we assume that survival will go up in their second year. So we were really just interested in how What's the probability of getting to year two? And so we didn't need a lot of data. We were really just after like 24 weeks, give or take. Um, but when we were, wanted to start doing external transmitter, transmitters with adults, it was all because we didn't want to lose a certain individual for some reason. Um, we needed more males. This female looks like she's in biogenesis. She's yoked up. We, we, she's probably going to give birth next year. We want her. But um, so... We asked ATS to slow down the pulse rate. Uh, I forget the model. Happy to share it with you if I can remember specifics, but I can't. Um, and uh, and it, it gave us, I think the warranty was six months. And then we started, um, we used fly tie, tying um, thread, and uh, we attached it to the rattle just above the basal rattle. So it wasn't touching any flesh or any tissue that was vascularized. And um, it worked. It worked really well. It bought us six months, you know, conservatively. We, we tracked them longer than that. But here's the problem. If you need to study a snake population and it's hard to get your hands on them, it's a really risky thing to do because they could drop their transmitter within three or four months. Um, so, you know, it's, it's risky. But for us, 
we were having trouble getting our, our hands on snakes. We could afford to lose the snakes. Not the end of the world. Um, you know, not a big deal. But it is something you can do when you're at the end of your field season and there are concerns about implantation and issues with, you know, uh, the, the, the winter temperatures and, and surgery. But, I mean, internal transmitters, there's no comparison. There's so much easier. There's so much more reliable. They're so much less stressful. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orian Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. How about, let's talk about, uh, you published a paper on breeding phenology in diamondbacks. So why don't you talk about that? Right. Not in great depth, but in a general sense, what have you learned about the sense of the timing of breeding with Eastern Diamondbacks? <laughs> we'll update it right now. We have right now, we have a student, her name's Emily Rothman, and she has really pulled us all toward focusing on reproductive ecology, which we're doing now. That's the twist. Um, and what we've done is, well, you know, islands are weird. So again, a lot, well, what I'm going to be talking about now is a sea island. They are weird if you're talking about white-tailed deer. You know, their breeding seasons will be very different. Their phenologies will be very different than you get inland, right? Key deer, they're super, they're odd. You know, even with white-tails in South Carolina, you go out in the islands, all bets are off when you're going to see a fawn. It's really strange. And it's hard to conceptualize that, right? So with Diamondbacks, um, Emily's a really great student. She's she's super observant, and um, she loves hunting rattlesnakes. She stays out in the field all the time. And she came across male-to-male combat in June. So most rattlesnakes, um, you know, that's unique. I guess. I guess it'd be easier if I describe how rattlesnake reproduction works, the timing of it in general. Um, the breeding season, typically, depending on the species, you have timbers, easterns, even western species, uh, kicks off when females enter estrus at the end of the summer, August, sometimes July, um, definitely September. So breeding is occurring. So females shed. Um, it's like their estrel shed. They go into estrus, which means they start producing eggs, intervitalogenesis. And they um, are in breeding condition. Males find them. They breed with multiple males. And then they store their sperm over the winter. Um, and they don't fertilize their eggs until they ovulate, which probably happens sometimes when we uh, diamondbacks in May, I'm thinking. Because it takes about 90 days to gestate the eggs. So they ovulate about May, so she has stored sperm, um, and then she gestates, and during this time she's starving, but she doesn't eat. She goes to a spot that gives her cover and access to sun, so she can elevate her body temperature for incubation. And then she gives birth in 
late August, early September. And, um, and so that's normal. And so as soon as females enter estrus, males will compete for access to females. I have personally never seen male-to-male combat. And um, I'm very jealous of my students that have. Frankly, I'm never there when it happens. But so she got in June, which is really early. On top of that, we're seeing copulation in March. Right. So I think, and then we started looking back at, um, they're breeding all of them. And I, it's a, we started looking back at our communal hibernacula data. And it appears when you get rattlesnakes and stump, it's usually because there's a receptive female in there. And there's several males in the stump with her. Uh, so you always just thought it was a little aggregation of overwintering animals, but you think there's a reproductive side to that. Um, and so they're definitely briefly March populating. Um, we've seen that at another site too. That isn't an island. So, um, you know, we're doing more physiological stuff right now and um, hoping to really expand some of that work we're doing, but we don't have results on that yet. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a mystery. I don't think it's just because I'm spending so much of my time on the sea island here. I think that, I think there. You think you'll see this pattern inland and other yeah, places yeah. as well. And then, um, we just started a project from Camp Lejeune, um, very similar to Paris Island. So we're in North Carolina now, and I'm suspecting it's occurring there too, based on um, some of the the observations made by the biologists at Lejeune and uh, some state biologists in North Carolina. So I suspect it's more widespread than than we think. Yeah, you you've been doing a fair amount of work related to like diamondback and human interactions over the years. You talked a little bit about Paris Island and how the, the snakes, you know, occur there, but people really just don't see them because of the timing of activities. But talk a little bit about, um, talk a little bit about your work on, on diamondback interaction with, with humans. And then we'll begin wrapping it up. I'm only like halfway through the things I wanted to ask you, but, but I don't want to, um, I don't want to take all of your day. So, but anyways, talk a little bit about human interactions and, and the work you've been doing over the years in that space. Anyone who cares about snakes has got to be just blown away by how many people don't care for snakes, right? So rattlesnakes in particular. And rattlesnakes are so fascinating because they exhibit a reaction, or, or they don't exhibit, they, they, they cause people to completely overreact. So the way we perceive fear is completely wrong when it comes to rattlesnakes. It fascinates me because I'm more likely to die from a tree falling on my head. And I like rattlesnakes and I'm catching them, right? So it's like versus someone who's not looking down and just walking through the woods, they are really at no risk. It's very unlikely. The risk is so low. So you have two types of bites. You have illegitimate bites and legitimate bites. And legitimate bites are when you didn't see the rattlesnake. You did not engage 
with the rattlesnake. You did not attempt to catch the rattlesnake or move it off the road. You just were walking and it bit you. And those are rare. They're more common in the Southwest, but in the Southeast, that's super rare. Um, most of the bites are illegitimate bites, which are ones where, hey, I'm going to get the snake out of the road. I'm going to take this machete and cut the snake's head off, put the bit on hand. You know, they're messing with the snake. They're intentionally you know, engaging with the snake. So, you know, if people didn't do that, there would be so fewer venomations in the United States from rattlesnakes. So people have this exaggerated risk perception. They see a snake, they scream, they run, they're freaking out. And the risk that snake is posing is extraordinarily low. And it, it's, it's just, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not, you know, you know, a lot of the human dimensions research depends on psychology. I'm not as interested in the people side of things, but I'm interested in what drives an encounter, an unwanted encounter. And so we did some work where we use occupancy models, which, you know, give you two parameters. They give you detection probability and probability of occurrence of the site. And we use detection probability as a proxy for encounter probability. And it allowed us to test these hypotheses about what's driving interactions. Where are we more likely to encounter a snake? Is it when you know, the conditions are favorable to the snakes, is it snake driven? Or is it when the conditions are favorable to the people? Is it when, you know, the right time of day for people to be in the woods, taking a walk with their dog? Um, and and we really deduced that it was snake driven, that when snakes are basking, which they don't bask very often in the southeast, that's kind of a winter thing. They're up in the winter, it was a winter study. Um and so they might bask in the morning, but they don't bask for long because it doesn't take a long to heat up. Um, cloudy conditions. You know, basically, if you're used to looking for rattlesnakes and you're a good snake hunter, the conditions, I mean, you want to go out there and look for snakes, are the conditions that are more likely to favor an encounter. And so, you know, we were able to work with stakeholders and say, okay, these are the types of habitats where it's about where they're more likely to occur. And we were able to say you should remove picnic tables from these areas. You should not encourage children to play here, 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 and here. And they did that and it worked. You know, I mean, it's just don't encourage people to be, to recreate where the snakes are going to be active during the times of day that people are there. So it was really applied and fun. Um, but yeah, I I can't I'd say, I, I'm always amazed at how people fear snakes. It, it is truly bizarre, and I can't relate to it at all. Yeah, no, it's such an intense fear, and I have a bunch of analogies I use when I talk to groups, but people are amazed that I handle them, for example. And, you know, I talk about it being fairly safe activity. I use analogies like, say, a carpenter using a nail gun. You know, it's actually a very safe activity. Somebody who's never used one, maybe less so, but um, but yes, no, the, the fear of snakes is is fascinating. We did a whole episode on that as well with Gordon Bernhardt. And um, it's it's yeah, it, it's it's so disproportionate to the actual risk. I mean, like you said, you're more likely to have uh, a tree fall on your head. You're much more likely 
you know, to get in a car accident on your way to the field site. And so, um, yeah, I always do that when I'm giving talks as well. I'll have the snake in my hand and they're like, everybody's like, oh my God. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm telling them what I did that day. They're seeing me hold the snake. And I'm like, the most dangerous thing I did today was drive here. And, uh, and okay, but, dogs are um, yeah. <laughs> Our best friends are more dangerous. So I'm curious because I know yeah. you have kids. My kids are not afraid of snakes. And yeah, yeah and I'm just, I, I never taught them to be afraid of snakes. They're fascinated by snakes, you know? And I mean, I don't tell them to go out and catch rattlesnakes. They're much too young for that. But they most certainly don't scream when they see and yeah. And I just, it's <laughs> sad that yeah i have a great real quick story about my son when he was little we were out in the rockies and uh, a couple family friends were there and we were on a river somewhere enjoying the day and all of a sudden this snake i can't remember what it was now maybe a garter i can't remember anyways a snake swims across the river and this this couple that you know we were with was like they they were like frozen mortified just like besides himself my son was like probably five years old just like walked into the creek and picked it up and, and they were like anyways but um so um i want to i want to bring this in for a landing but i've got two more questions that i would just want like one sentence answers on and these have to do with two papers, um, uh, titles of manuscripts are on. I haven't even read the abstract, but the title caught my eye. And so one, one has to do with long distance movement relative to a diamondback. So how far, you said they don't move far generally, the young um, disperse, but how far you know, have you guys seen them move? Approximately. You mean extreme, like a record movement? Yeah. Um, I had one male move one kilometer a day for seven days. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Okay, second one. I don't even think this probably has to, based on the title, has anything. To, it, I don't think it has to do with diamondbacks. I think it's probably more about timbers, but you can correct me. But I saw a title of a paper you're on that had something to do with like mast availability and its impact on on where or how snakes hunt so what's the like if you were to sum that up in like one to three sentences what is that because the title fascinates me mass can be soft mass like a berry blackberry or hard mass like green up oh so we are talking about dynamics yep. and um okay. and mass availability will dictate where they forage. So they're responding to prey that are immediately, they're hunting prey that are responding to the availability of mast. Ah, okay, great. And obviously they're sensing the prey, I'm assuming, or we assume they're not, they're not chemo, you know, recipient for blackberries or whatever it might be. So, okay, great. Well, let's wrap this up by imagining that we just, spent a day out snake hunting for diamondbacks on a sea island and we're sitting around a campfire um, talking and telling stories and you are going to tell me your best snake story. I have a lot. 
most people on this podcast do. So yeah. <laughs> because it's it was emotional. Okay. So we tracked a female rattlesnake um, in 2009. She was originally captured in 2008, I think, um, as a big adult. And our growth models, um, you know, indicated that she was probably, I mean, I don't know what her age was at the time we initially captured her, but she was a big female. So I conservatively, I mean, this is being ridiculously conservative. She's 15. And I had been, you know, we, I didn't name snakes, but I we used to identify based on the last four digits of the pit tag. But when you're radio tracking, 40 snakes. And I want technicians and students to be able to look for breeding observations. Is this a male or a female? And they don't know this is 4223. So we started naming them. And this is really inappropriate. I'm sorry. She bred with so many males in 2009. We named her Hussy. So <laughs> my students were giving me such a hard time over her name. I'm never name a snake. I was like, this snake is fascinating, man. She, we tracked her for a few years. And then we hadn't seen her in a long time. Um, so this summer, 2022, we were hunting rabid females for our reproductive um, ecology work. And I walked out of this marsh edge area. It's like right on the edge of the marsh. And I saw the largest, one of the largest dimebacks I've ever seen. Not the largest, but it was close. And I caught her. It was her. And... I couldn't believe it. And because my, my students have been giving me crap about her that day. And I didn't know it was her until we, you know, collected her, took her back to our to the spot where we work every everyone all the snakes up. And it was her. And she had um she was our record female. She was the largest female we'd ever caught there. And she had 18 neonates. Definitely multiple paternity going on there too. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just continuing your joke. Go ahead. <laughs> that was really cool to be telling these students about the snake and we were hunting rabbit snakes. I can't believe we came across her. We've actually put an external transmitter on her. So um, we're uh, hoping to get some of her DNA here soon, but she needs to shed. But yeah, so she's alive. She's well. She's over 30 years old. Um, and she's producing more babies than any other female we've seen on the island, which is pretty cool. So I, you know, even though she's old, she's still very young. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Is it, you said the story was a little sad. What's the sad part? Oh, it's like, oh, because it's sweet. It's like, oh, I love the snake. This is one of the oh, oh, No, not yeah. sad. No, 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 no. Hussie's alive and well. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, you know, the lesson is, I'm always kind of preaching this. If, if you want to study rattlesnakes, in fact, a lot of different snake species, anything with a slow life history, you need to be prepared to scale your research to the species demography. With rattlesnakes, that means you've got to be a Bill Brown. You've got to be a Bruce Meads. You've got to be a Marty Martin. You've got to be so tenacious and obsessed with it that you never want to stop. Or else you're just, you know, short-term, and most of the funding it's available is for a short-term study, right? You've got two years to answer a question, to do some sort of applied conservation. That's what I do. Rattlesnakes do that. You can do two-year studies. Like with timber rattlesnakes, you got to thank Bill Brown, you know, Reiner, Marty Martin for their work because it allows us to do two-year studies now. 
because we already know so much about that organism. But, you know, not all rattlesnakes are the same, and it's just going to take a lot of long-term work. And that's a hard sell. It's hard to get funded for that. Yep, no, that's true, especially for a venomous snake. So I think that is a good place to leave it. I loved hearing the story of Hussey. Um, um, but yeah, thank you, Jamie, so much for coming on today. Uh, I really appreciate especially letting you kind of jump all around with different questions here. Um, but but I'm, I'm glad you uh, could answer them all for us. For having me on, I'll talk about these venomous rattlesnakes all day long and forever. And I just wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in a while.